0: Hey everyone, this is Josh Itso, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary U Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 27 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Holly Knight, who is Director of Retirement Outcomes for Sapers and Wallach, where she leads their financial wellness initiatives utilizing technology and analytics, as well as active listening and experience to guide plan participants towards the goals they want to achieve for retirement and beyond. She's also served as an adjunct professor at the University of New Hampshire, teaching students about the core functions of modern business organizations. While we've been connected on LinkedIn for a while, she and I first met for the first time at the Wealth at Work conference, and I learned of her incredibly powerful personal story and how to shape the financial coaching she provides employees. I was captivated and knew I had to have her on the podcast. On this episode, Holly and I discuss her personal story of growing up in poverty and being emancipated from her family in her teenage years, her experiences with the behavioral and emotional aspect of counseling and coaching employees, the financial wellness platform she's designed and launched, and the research she conducted to find the best tech platform that she uses to enable this offering, her experiences, best practices, and lessons learned from deploying a comprehensive wellness solution, financial wellness as it specifically relates to women, and where she thinks the future of financial wellness and advice are going. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a tremendous amount, and I think Holly is a star when it comes to financial wellness. I think you will too. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Holly Knight, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest.
1: Well, hello, Josh. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you. You have an awesome story. You and I, we've been connected on LinkedIn but we didn't really meet until a couple of weeks ago down at the Wealth at Work conference. We grabbed lunch one day and just started chatting and realized that we both had this kind of passion for behavioral finance and the behavioral emotional impact that mm. that money and and wealth or lack of thereof it, if you will, has on people. And then you told me kind of your personal story, which we'll get into, which was just captivating. So I am super excited for you to be here and we're going to have a fun discussion.
1: Thanks. Yeah. I have to tell you, when I saw your name on the registration list, I was like, oh, I'm like, and then when we were in a workshop together and we were both saying kind of the same thing, I knew we were destined to be friends.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, 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 you know, if you were excited that my name was on the list, that might just be a function of like, they should have gotten maybe some better folks to come down (laughs) there, but I I appreciate the sentiment. (laughs) So you are Director of Retirement Outcomes for Sapers and Wallach, which is a totally baller title, by the way. Why don't you give a little bit of background just you know, about kind of who you are and what you do, and then we can kind of transition into to hearing more about your story. But like day-to-day, talk a little bit about what your role looks like and, and talk a little bit about Sapers and Wallach.
1: Sure. Yeah. So Director of Retirement Outcomes, that's a fancy title, and sometimes I... I... I call myself a financial coach or a financial therapist more than anything else. But so Sapers and Wallach is a we're an RIA. We're a third generation firm located in Newton, Mass. Our CEO is Aviva Saper, so a female, a female directed firm, which is also very, very cool. Yeah. So retirement. I mean, I cut my teeth in this industry back in 2007. So right at the end of 2007, for a broker dealer. And really focused on the wealth management side. And then, you know, I, I didn't quite agree or didn't drink the Kool Aid, I guess, uh, with that firm. It, it didn't really match with me and my personality and my skill set. So I kind of took some some different paths along the way, and then ended up at Sapers after you know hitting a couple of other firms that also didn't line up with my values. So it's been uh, an interesting ride, but yeah, I love it. And so my day-to-day now is I get to do education. So I'm responsible for all of the educational content that comes out of Safers and Wallach for our employees for the employees of our clients. And I also do a ton a ton a ton of one-on-one consultations with folks. So it's been a really cool experience. I will say I don't think there's a more exciting time to be in the industry than right now. Mm. There's a lot of stuff going on and there's just a lot of opportunity to really kind of, you know, shift this paradigm of where we are when it comes to retirement readiness. So I'm excited right. to be a part of it.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And you've built some really cool stuff. At your firm, built a a financial wellness platform, leveraging a technology platform that you've essentially used to, to build on top of. We're going to get into that, but I think you've done some really, really awesome stuff. As I mentioned, it was, it was your kind of personal story. You know, I think stories are so powerful and that's, you know, in the financial world, like we want Mm. to talk about bits and bytes of information and data and spreadsheets and charts and projections and all of that, but that doesn't connect people to one another and we're in a very trust based business and and part of coaching counseling advising clients is you need them to really begin to get kind of vulnerable oh, right yeah. with you and really start to talk about and a lot of advisors like they feel less comfortable kind of when you start to to talk about more of the kind of the personal or emotional aspect of money but i've always found that when you can get clients or you can get employees that are willing to kind of open the kimono and and be vulnerable, that's when you really start to be able to kind of shape and, and influence and help people. And when you told me your story, I mean, I just kind of sat on the edge of my seat. So talk a little bit about like, you know, growing up, It's 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 an amazing story. I can't wait for listeners mm-hmm. to hear it. Talk a little bit about your story that kind of shaped how you've gotten to where you are and why you're so passionate about what you do.
1: Absolutely. So I will say, you know, my story is not something you talked about vulnerability, and I think that is a a key ingredient to really, you know, affecting any kind of change or sustainable change. But it's one thing to talk about it with others. And not talk about ourselves, right? Right. So and I think we see that across the board. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. So I was I was having dinner, so I also teach, I'm an adjunct professor, so I have an economics degree, my bachelor's is in economics, my master's is in education. So I've taught at every level from preschool all the way up through CES. Not a big difference, by the way, between those two. And I say that only they're both
0: they're both infantile.
1: Well, I say that because, you know, how we take in an information, and how we communicate information, that doesn't change much, right? That's our personality type is kind of established very early on. So that's part of it. But... You know, I was having dinner with one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Hasse. He's a professor at the University of New Hampshire, where I'm an adjunct. And we were having dinner doing a catch-up one night, and he's very, you know, he's he's in his 70s, wears a bow tie. He's just very proper. And I talk a lot with my hands, and I'm, I'm very animated, and he was just quiet. And at the end of it, he goes, Holly, he goes, what's your Why? I'm like, what do you mean? What's my why? He goes, well, why do you do what you do? I'm like, because I want to help people. Like, isn't that why everybody does what they want to do? He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But you can help people doing a lot of different things. Like, why did you choose this specific career? And his question kind of threw me a little bit. I was like, you know, I think it kind of chose me. And he's, he said, well, what do you mean? And so I told him my story and, you know, yeah. I grew up in poverty. It was pretty extreme poverty and I was emancipated at 15. I moved out and couch surfed until I turned 16 and could afford to buy a car. I got a what does job. that
0: mean? What does that mean? I mean, emancipated. I know what emancipated means, but in the context of being a teenager, like, what does that actually mean?
1: That means that you have all legal responsibilities. So nobody else, mm. even though you're under the age of 18, you can make all legal decisions for yourself. So you're not dependent on anybody else. Is what was that, that means. a crazy
0: you, process? I mean, you don't have to get too deep yeah. into it, but like, was that a crazy process? <laughs>
1: It's actually, well, it depends on whether or not you are the only one that feels that you should be emancipated. So okay. for me, it actually wasn't, it wasn't that big of a process. Mm-hmm. I just felt at that time that I could do a better job. And I, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I just knew I wanted something different. And. Right. At 16, I, I was working full-time. I was working 40 hours a week when I was 16 years old. Some of that was under the table. I doubled up on my classes my senior year of high school just so I could graduate early and you know just work because I was going to have to put myself through college. And so I did, got to college. I bartended three jobs at the same time and that's how I paid for it. And I graduated and I landed on my feet and I, I did okay. But you know, the road was not always easy. It was very windy and I had a lot of really low points. And really the reason I do what I do is because there was nobody talking to me about finances, Mm -hmm. right? I was an economics major. Still, nobody talks to you about like personal finance. All I knew is that that little plastic card was going to give me what I needed in the moment. And I would worry about the repercussions of that later. Like Mm -hmm. that wasn't something I was going to deal with now. You know, as you know, because you're in this industry as well, it's, you know, it took me like a decade to get myself out of the hole that I built for myself, mm. right? And so that would have been so, so helpful. We don't, we don't talk about finances early enough. I mean, I just saw a statistic not too long ago that said 70 to 75% of people today, the first time they're hearing about financial education is through their workplace 401k or 403b plan. And mm. that's a really scary thing to hear Yeah, that this is the first time adults are talking about finances, responsible yeah. finance. So I told him my story and he said, he goes, Holly, you got to lead with that story. And I was like, no, 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 no. I can, I'm not going to talk about me. This isn't about me. This is about them. He goes, yeah, but how are you ever going to get them to like be vulnerable? We'll also tell you his background in emotional intelligence. And we did a lot of trainings together um, and facilitating trainings on that. So I remember the first time I talked about this, I had just done a presentation on basics of your 401k and I'm up there and I'm doing my thing, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this room full of people. So this was a mill, like mill workers. There's like three different shifts and I walk in and the room is packed. I was like, dang, this is awesome. They all came to see me. There's like 75 people in the room. And I'm like, no, they came for the free coffee and the donuts, but that's whatever. They were in the room. So I was right. I, like, I got them. So I'm up there and I'm doing my thing and, you know, I look out at the sea of faces and they're all just like, you know, deers in the headlights and, you know, I don't know. I'm pretty engaging most of the time. I think I'm pretty animated, but I just got this feeling that they're looking at me like, yeah, you seem nice enough. I dressed the part. I looked the part. I sound the part, but you don't know me and there's no way you can relate to me. And so when I told my story, all of a sudden everyone leans in, right? Mm -hmm. So in that first time I was shaking the first time I ever told that story, yeah. but now it 's one of the things I talk it 's the first thing I start off every session I do with that, and I make sure that it 's less than a minute long. I mean this is a little bit longer than I would ever talk about it normally right. because i don 't want the focus to be on you know that part of the story because that 's not the point. The point for me is to show listen. Anybody can can change their story, change their money story. It's just you, sometimes we need accountability partners or sometimes we need the help and mm-hmm. guidance. And so I love telling my story because I love seeing the reaction of people who prior to that thought – they're ashamed. I mean, there's all kinds of different narratives that go on in people's heads about where they are and where they think they should be. And so as soon as I tell that story, it kind of evens the the playing field. And ultimately the goal here is to help people. And if you can't get them to open up about everything that's going on for them, then it's, it's a challenge, right? So this is really kind of set that level for me as far as engaging with participants. So it's been, it's been good. It's been a good thing.
0: That's awesome. Let me just ask you, just out of curiosity, Mm. you mentioned you grew up in poverty. Mm -hmm. How did that impact your Mm -hmm. relationship with money? And, you know, even now that you're in the business and you've got an economics degree, how do you see those experiences and, and how it impacted you? Like, does it still influence your relationship as an adult and as a very successful, knowledgeable financial professional? Does it still, do you find it, Like rearing its ugly head and still impacting your relationship with your money?
1: So I just have to say, I love that you just asked that question. We didn't even practice that. So that's fantastic (laughs) because it's spot on. And so, you know, Your money story is defined by the time you're like five, five or six, depending on what you read, but it's five or six. And so how we feel about money and how we interact with money as adults is established by watching those around us when we're children, right? Good, bad, or indifferent, it doesn't matter, but that is what helps, you know, the foundation of your money story. So- For me, you know, I grew up in in, in poverty. There was never enough food to eat. I started working at Little Caesars and making, I had a younger brother and sister. Pizza, pizza. Pizza, pizza. And an older brother. But I would, you know, I would go and and, and work and I would bring dinner home almost every night, like for Mm. my brother and sister. So, I mean, it was just a lot. And my mom was a single mom for, for some of that. And she, you know, was uneducated. I was the first one in my family to go to college. And so it was, you know, there was a lot of, A lot of variables there as far as the poverty was. All I knew, though, Josh, was that, you know, I was smart enough to know or I had the instinct to know that this is not the life I want to live, right? And it's hard when you're a child or growing up in adolescence and and you don't really know what you don't know, but you know that you want something different. So it was a great... It's a great negative reinforcer, I guess. I, yeah. I'm also one of those people. I don't ever look in the rearview mirror and say, you know, I wish I, I would have, should have, could have. I just feel like that's a waste of of, of energy and, and space in and my mind. Change, is, you can't change the past. Yeah. So my my thing is like, I'm all about making mistakes, owning your mistakes, learning from your mistakes, but don't wallow in your mistakes, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, learn what you need to learn from that lesson and then move on. Let it go because it's otherwise it just creates... Havoc on you. And that's true when I'm meeting with participants as well. I mean, a lot of them are so, there's so much shame. Like, I can't tell you how many times people will say to me, like, I know, I know I should have done this or I'm so stupid or I don't know. I'm like, listen, I'm not here to judge you. That's not my job. Like, I am not here to judge anyone. And to be totally honest, outside of you understanding what your money story is, because that is a very important piece going forward, it doesn't matter to me what happened there. You're telling me your goals are here. So we need to figure out how do we get from here to there, right? and understand your behavior and why you are, you know, why you made those decisions. That's important too. So yeah. Does it still impact me? Absolutely. 100%. And and that's another thing that I tell people. I said, listen, for some people, and and I do this for myself and I counsel some people to do this, if, if it's something that would be helpful for them. But when my paycheck comes in, it comes in and, everything is allocated for. So I have four different high yield savings accounts that have four different purposes. They're labeled Mm -hmm. that way. I don't have any kind of ATMs or debit cards. So if I actually want money, I have to go down and get the money or, you know, I have to wait for the transfer, which takes days. So I put all of these little kind of parameters around because I know from my behavioral mindset where it comes from. And so it, it's a constant practice of, you know, just being mindful of that. And that's, yeah. I think once you are, that's the shift. That's when the shift really can happen right. for folks.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that there's just a couple of really cool things that you mentioned there. One is I love this idea of the money story and, and not to paint things with a broad brush, but I think, you know, two of the dominant mindsets when it comes to money is either a scarcity mindset or you know, an abundance, abundance.
1: mindset yeah.
0: and how those things play out obviously have a really, a really big impact. The other thing I love that you said was, you know, we talk about, you know, having a, a plan, but making wellness actionable, you know, it's not just pretty platitudes, right? And, and I loved what you said is how do you take, you know, kind of if you understand and you're aware and so much of, of, not allowing your mind to sabotage your money i think is having self awareness like you recognize that you growing up right that you went through a 10 year period where you had to do a lot of hard work to dig yourself out of a hole because it sounds like you know you used credit you know cards. credit in order but and and part of that was out of necessity right but now understanding that hey i dug myself out it took a lot of hard work i don't want to go back there i love the fact that like what you've done is you said, I'm going to put some, in in some ways, some guardrails, right? I'm going to create these four accounts. And in some ways, from a behavioral standpoint, we know about it with automatic features and whatnot with inertia, you know, you've made it like, hey, if I want to buy something on Amazon, you know, it's not as easy as just hopping online and clicking a button because I'm not using credit cards or even debit card. I've got these four buckets. They all have a purpose. The money is allocated. And in order to get that money, I have to put forth, I have to overcome some inertia. I got to run out of the bank. I got to get it. Or I got to do a transfer. That's going to take a few days. I think that's just a brilliant way, based on your self-awareness, to say, what are some of the things that I can put in place that protect me from my, maybe my natural bent, but also make it hard enough where I'm creating some friction between my you know my desires and my actions, if that makes sense.
1: Totally. I mean, you think about like if you go into Dunkin' Donuts or any any restaurant like that, right? Now they have all the calories. It tells you what, what's yeah. in everything. I don't know about you, but like I look at that and I'm like, oof. I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't want those calories. <laughs> right. But if I didn't see the calories, I would get it. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's yeah. a mental, mm. I say that I also lost 125 pounds. I used to weigh 250, and that was again, but that's your mindset. It's like changing yeah. your mindset and tricking yourself into right. like sustaining that. So yeah. Automation, automation, automation. I mean, that is 100% for me has been the key. Then you just track it, let it go. And, and then you look and you're like, Oh my gosh, where did this all come from? So, right, right. you know, I do have some clients or some participants, they don't need that. You know, they may need some help with budgeting or they may need some help with, you know, the path, but they don't have that, that bend, right? So they, right. they don't have to kind of put those guardrails in place for themselves. And that's great. Everybody's different. There, I don't think one is better than the other. We are who we are. And I totally right. own that. But yeah, I just, I know I have goals and, and I also know that emotionally, like, you know, and there's. Some people eat, some people shop, some people do whatever, work out. Maybe that's the one I should do more of. But you know, it's like you just know that you tend to do certain things when right. you're feeling certain ways. So it yeah. is so much about emotions, I think, yeah. in this industry.
0: Yeah. And I I, you know, we talked a little bit about it down in Nashville, and I think we were both on the same page. But, you know, I, I really do believe that that ninety percent of successful financial planning at an individual level is behavioral and not informational or knowledge it's it's i know like if i want to lose 20 pounds i know how to lose weight i mean i could do a google search and i could i could right. get workout programs and i could get a meal plan and i know that i probably need to sleep 8 hours a night or more and i need to drink plenty of water it's not that i don't know what i should do if i want to lose 20 pounds and and get healthier it's when the alarm clock goes off it six o'clock in the morning, I have to overcome my desire to like roll over and go back to sleep. (laughs) And I have to like, it's so much of it is behavioral. You know, Mm -hmm. financial planning is not for most people is not, it's not rocket science. We're not curing cancer from an intellectual standpoint, but it's around how do you begin to control your behavior? And I think advisors over the next five to 10 years, my personal opinion, need to become experts in behavioral finance and coaching and understand things like, you know, there's amazing behavioral financial, behavioral finance, you know, concepts, whether that's mental accounting or whether that's cognitive bias or in my latest book, The Fiduciary Formula, I have a whole chapter on it. And there's, you know, there's probably 10 or 15 concepts that people need to be need to be aware of. But the more advisors that can start to understand and I think teach employees and clients and help them understand themselves and then come up with those actionable strategies in terms of like, how do you navigate your natural bent, your money story with your behavior? Mm -hmm. That's the wave of the future and planning from my perspective. I don't know what your thought is. 100%
1: agree with that. Like, I try to
0: only have people on the show that agree with me. 100% 100
1: agree with you. Listen, I'm an educator. Education runs through my blood. So for me, this is more than just, I mean, yeah, we. I can regurgitate factoids to someone and tell them, this is what you need to do. But for me, it's like, I would rather them learn it and understand why they do what they're doing. So this outside of behavior, just picking investments. I had a participant a couple of weeks ago, she's in her 20s. She was in a target day fund so we we went through all of like her whole all of her stuff and she's like I really want to kind of build out my own portfolio or I want you to help me. I'm like okay, great. So I gave her like a style box and I said, here's your choices of investments. Here's the boxes I want you to fill in based on your risk tolerance and and where you kind of should be. And she came back from that and she's like I have to tell you I learned so much about mm-hmm. like just, you know, what investments were on that particular project. And so I feel like, you know, if you really want to make sustainable change and behavior, it's people don't know what they don't know. So they need the education. They need, they need the knowledge to make those yeah. informed decisions. And that's accountability, though. I mean, I won't use any record keeper names, but I will just say this. <laughs> you know, if you look at all of the record keepers, it doesn't matter. You fill in the blank. All of them have financial wellness programs, right? They all have great platforms. They're huge. And, They have great talent, they have great resources, they've got scalability, they've got everything they need to be successful. But yet when you look at the actual engagement rate from participants, it's single digits. And, and in my mind, why is that? It's not because it's not because they don't have the talent, the resources, and the money. It's because there's no accountability. It's, mm. it's like I, I use this analogy, but it's like you know, you, say you want to build a house, and so you meet with the contractor. You design the house that you want. You're like, great. You show up to kind of see how things are going with coffee, and all the building materials are there. And the contractor says, "Okay, go to it, go build your house." I mean, that's crazy, right? We wouldn't do that, but that's kind of what we're asking participants to do. Like, right. Here's all the resources for you now, go. And we wonder why they're not doing anything. It's, there's no accountability. And if, if I don't have to be accountable to someone, then, you know, if I don't know how many calories are in that donut, then I'll get the donut because I don't have to be accountable to it. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. That's huge. You know, I loved what you said there. Like a a lot of times we design in the industry, we design these plans to what I would call the highest common denominator, right? Mm -hmm. So that analogy you used. There is a small percentage of people that would show up at that job site tool belt on the, and pick up the hammer. And actually, they'd probably go at it. And even a smaller percentage of that probably would actually be able to build themselves something. Yep. But the vast majority would not. The beautiful thing I think in the industry, and, and quite frankly, when you start to talk about the behavioral finance element and and having been you know, a co-founder of a firm where we built a billion dollar retirement pra- or or private client practice and a four and a half billion dollar retirement practice, okay. the private wealth industry planning wise actually is well beyond even though the retirement plan advisory space and a lot of retirement plan advisors want to get into wealth management. And I've started to say that, you know, we in the industry like to, and I've said this on a podcast before, but we like to make fun of advisors who we call like two plan Tony's because they don't have, you know, they only have a couple of plans. They don't really know what they're doing, but I hear a lot of these retirement plan advisors wanting to get the wealth management, thinking it's gonna be easy and not realizing like when they're going up against the specialists on the wealth side, like they're gonna be like the two financial plan Tonys because there's a lot of complexity around it. But I will say that where I think the retirement industry, one of the areas when it comes down to financial planning is ahead is around the behavioral aspect because of automatic features. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the person who's totally disengaged, automatic features are, I think, has been a huge innovation and have, have, have really had a major impact. That was one of the most important things we did for our clients back in my former life was getting them mm-hmm. to adopt automatic features in a really progressive, forward-thinking way that had an impact on their people, especially those who were really, really disengaged, The people who are engaged are always going to figure it out on their own, but it doesn't go the other way around. But talk a little bit about, based on your experience, how important do you think it is when you sit down with someone for them not just to say they want to get financially well, but that they're willing to put the work in and do what's necessary? Like how much is personal ownership and responsibility? How much does that play a role into people making progress?
1: it's a big piece of it. It's a, it's actually a really big piece of it. I think, you know, a lot of times, and I'm seeing this more and more, especially just in the last year. I mean, the shifts that I'm seeing has been incredible just from an engagement standpoint, Mm. but a lot of times, uh, and you know, this, it's like people don't know what they don't know. Right. So if they've scheduled a consultation with me, they'll come in and they'll, they'll ask questions like, am I contributing enough? Should I up my contributions? Like, am I in the right asset class? Right. So they're asking all of those very surface questions because mm. they don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. Maybe they're feeling like something's not right or I'm, I'm living paycheck to paycheck, but I make good money. So why am I living paycheck to paycheck? Mm. So they instinctively, again, and this goes back to what you said earlier, and I have, a, I have a slide that I put into one of my presentations about our financial wellness program that talks exactly what you were saying. It's like, What we know we should do versus what we actually do is a huge difference, right? I think we all instinctively know we need to save for retirement, and yet a very small percentage of us actually do. So the behavioral aspect of that is just a massive, massive piece of it. But when they're coming to me, they, they don't really know. So. I was struggling. I was really struggling just because we're a small firm. And so it's hard to get out there and talk to as many people as you can when you're a small firm. And so, and part of that is because you're unpacking, you're unpacking a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. as you're sitting there with them. And that takes, that takes time. And I just felt like, gosh, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like the, I can't scale. I can't talk to as many people as I need to talk to in this model. So what's out there that could do this for me and take some of that administrative stuff off the table? So I, you know, I pitched this to my firm about financial wellness and I've been beating this drum now. You and I talked about this in Nashville, but I've been beating that drum for like three years. It's always been important to me, but I kind of felt like I was on an island to some Mm -hmm. degree. I'm like, nobody seems to be hearing or thinking about this the same way I do. I worked for an RIA and uh, I went in, I did a presentation and, you know, again, it was like the sea of, you know, non-committal faces. And after talking to them, I'm like... What I learned in that one particular session was that they're not contributing more to their 401k, which is why I was there to talk, but because they're paying, you know, for the, their grandkids' education, they just took out another mortgage on their house. They're, it's like their money is going to all these places that is not helping them for retirement. Yeah. And I remember walking away from that and I'm like, Oh my God, like this is exactly what the problem is. And so I went back to my boss. I went into his office and I'm like, I told him about my, my session and I'm like, we're having the wrong conversation. Like this isn't what we should be talking about. Like I can't get Mm. people to get interested in the 401k when they're struggling to to keep their house. Right. And he said, Holly, that's not your job. And he goes, your job is to go in there and talk about the 401k. And I was like, yeah, you're right. This is not my job. And I laughed (laughs) because (laughs) this is
0: literally not my job anymore.
1: No, because it's just, it didn't feel right to me. I didn't feel like I was doing the right thing. And so finding a financial wellness program. And I pitched that to my, to my firm and they said, okay, go out and see what you can find. And so I did, you know, I looked at a lot of different firms and I had different criteria that I was looking at as far as what would be a successful program for us. Um, So you kind of
0: ran like a little RFP, if you will, for a wellness platform to leverage.
1: And I'm like such a a nerd when it comes to statistics and data and, and using all that stuff. So I was like, I had it all like spreadsheeted out. But yeah, we found one and we adopted it in November of last year. So we just, you know, just finished out a full year of it and it has been life-changing. It's been life-changing for me, but it's also been life-changing for a lot of the people that we work with. So, you know, that behavioral finance, that's a piece of it. But this this program allows me to get to that meat very quickly. Mm. And that's what I love about it.
0: So the, kind of the velocity of those interactions accelerates, if you will.
1: Yes. And you can just take that and go in a lot of different directions. Yeah. It.
0: So so you chose WellSense, WellSense as the yeah. as the platform provider. You know, a lot of advisors listen to this podcast and and there's this battle going on within the industry around like you've got, there's a lot of frenemies going on right <laughs> now. You've got record keepers that want to get into the wellness space. Yeah. You've got advisors who want to get into the wellness space and how they do it. The fact that you went through this process, talk a little bit about that because I think that would be helpful for advisors that are listening that that either are looking for a new platform Mm. or are looking to launch a wellness program. How do they do that? Like, what was the process that you went through? What were you looking for? And ultimately, why did you, like, what were the, I would say, kind of the, the best practices or the lessons you learned in choosing, you know, a platform partner and then taking that a step further, you've had twelve months of kind of implementing the Mm. program. What are some of the learnings and lessons that you've taken away from that?
1: Yeah, so I did an RFP and I and I, you know, nailed it down to or scaled it down to about two. There was two finalists. And the one that I was leaning towards, I, I mean and I did a lot of research. I analyzed a lot of different things. I wanted something that was scalable. I wanted something that was Packaged as far as the content. Like, I'm always going to tweak because that's what we do. But I wanted something that was already established. I don't want to have to come up with marketing and branding and and, and making sure all my presentations make sense. Like, I just need someone to do that for me because that takes a great, great amount of time. So that was one. And then the other thing was like, we didn't have, we have a great CRM, but it's been through some different teams of people over the years. And probably, you know, it needs a little cleaning up and, and we're kind of figuring that out. But I want to be able to use data to drive action. I feel like there's so many times, and you know this as well as I do, but it's like, I'd go up there, do an education session, you know, I think I hit the mark. I feel like they, mm. you know, in that small group of people, they heard what I had to say. And 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 I always would run a report afterwards, by the way, again, data geek, but I'd run a report just to kind of see if there was any action. Change
0: leaving from that meeting. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I always do that because I So like did we
0: did did you see like an uptake in participation or, or deferral rates right. or people changing their investments yeah. or anything like that? Yeah.
1: I always pick like one nugget that I, I, I know I can easily look at the actions. So like did right. they all increase their beneficiaries? Whatever. Actually go in and put their beneficiaries. So I wanted something that had data. It was data driven because that's the other piece of this. Like You know, you can talk to HR directors or HR teams that, you you know, on the financial education side about what they think their employees need. I think we can guess what we think people need. But I'll tell you, I've walked into meeting, I walked into a meeting once. It was on estate planning. And so when you hear estate planning, you're thinking the demographic in the room is going to be an older, older age group, right? I walked into a room and there was a little under a hundred people in the room and the majority of the faces I saw were in their twenties. 20s or 30s. And I was like, I had a panic attack because I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the wrong session. I prepared for the wrong session, right? That was my knee-jerk reaction. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to wing this. And so, you know, I did my introduction and I said, I just, I have to say, you know, first of all, I'm impressed to see so many young faces here talking about estate planning, but now I'm genuinely curious. Why? Why are you here? The majority of them said, because I have elderly parents that are, you know, and they're not talking to me about it. So I just want to inform myself. So, you know, you think, you know, what people need to hear and what, at what point in life they need to hear it. We don't know that. The data can show us though. And so I wanted something that was, uh, that was data driven. And so that was a piece of it. And then I would say the last part of it is something where, you know, there was action items that could be followed up on. Like how do we track whether or not what we're doing today is going to make a difference for tomorrow? And so that piece of it's been, we're getting to see it right now because it's been a whole year since we've had this program. Those are the things I was looking at. The end result was we picked WellSense for for several reasons. One, the person who started WellSense, she's a financial advisor based in Florida, and she ended up selling her financial wellness program to another company, and they rebranded it as WellSense. But I just remember I watched so many videos of her, and like I just I was engaged. She she had me. I wanted to work on my financial wellness by listening to her, and so I felt like that here is somebody or an entity that under thinks about this the way I think about this. And up until that point, I hadn't really found anyone that had. Yeah, so we launched it and there was a lot of learning that happened, a lot of learning curves there. But ultimately, I think the biggest lessons that I've learned from that program or from this program is two things. Well, there's probably many things. I'd say two. It's Ten things now. The first thing, though, is that I can now very, very quickly identify where I think somebody is and what, why they're there. Right. So, and just to back up. So there's a like
0: a diagnosis component, if you will, right. That it gives you the ability to diagnose
1: before you prescribe. Yes. I can, I can, you know, pretty closely, figure out what's going on. So the whole program, it's based on a four minute assessment. It takes four minutes to, to complete this, four to five minutes. It, and it is in four key areas of your financial life. So it's personal finance, talking about budgeting, savings, emergency funds, things like that. Investment planning, making sure that asset allocation, diversification, all of those big words. And then retirement planning, tax efficiency, things like that, and estate planning. So, and that's, what we're talking about insurances and all that. So those four key areas within each of those four key areas are tons of different things that we could be looking at. Mm -hmm. But this allows me, they take the assessment and then they get a score and the score is based from zero to a hundred. They get their score and they click on the score and they can see in those four key areas, it's very visual. They can see where they land, right? So me, I can look at that and say, okay, if I see, you know, that they're, they're mostly like green on estate planning. I know that we're not going to be talking about estate planning because it's, right. it seems like they, they've already kind of figured that out. So I'm not going to waste any time on it. And we focus on the ones that they need the attention on. Now,
0: So that's where the velocity comes in. You're not burning cycles, talking about things that that no. you can maybe improve marginally or which aren't right. important. You're able to, to dial into
1: Very the next best
0: step in the area that is kind of the highest priority to the individual. Is that yes,
1: fair? absolutely. And one of the best questions on there is, what are your top three concerns? What, what's keeping you up at night? So now yeah. they're directly telling us and, and mm. these are, you know, they pick those, they're multiple choice. This assessment though, like from an advisor's perspective, like what used to take me an hour to unpack and figure out like where this person is financially and emotionally, cause that's part of it too. I can now do that in, in 15 minutes. So in 15 to 20 minutes, which is about average for, for my consultations now. And they walk away from that consultation with action items. So it's, it's just really streamlined my process. And it now I run a report. So we, we launch a program. So when a company says, yes, we want well sense. So we will, it takes us a month to launch it. And during that month, we're, you know, doing different email campaigns and things like that. And people are registering, taking the assessment and then doing a consultation. One of the greatest things for employers with this, and this is why employers love it, A, we're taking a lot of administrative stuff off of the table for HR. So it's, you know, and they're on the front line. So these are the folks that are getting the questions. They're they're the ones that are sometimes being their own wealth counselors and, you know, trying to talk to people. And for the most part, I, well, I'll say for all of our clients. They care about their people. They want their people to do well. And it bothers HR teams when they don't do well. Yeah. So this takes that you off. You don't spend a,
0: you don't spend a month investing the time to launch a financial wellness program if you really don't care about right. making sure your people are financially well.
1: Exactly. So at the end of that, I can run a report. Now we it's confidential. Anything that an individual talks to us about, obviously it's confidential. Hmm. But it does give us an aggregate of the workforce. So I can run a report at the end of that month of all the people who have taken the assessment. And I've got all kinds of data points to go back to the employer with when we do those executive committee meetings. It's like, okay, this is where your workforce is on average. Like these, your workforce has told us the top three concerns are these. So now I know when we do a group session, we don't really have to do a lot of thinking on what that group session's what they're going to be on, right? Because they've already told us what they need. Right. So they love that because now we can actually see and drive change towards those goals. And so that's that's a really big thing. And then one last thing, well, not one last, but here's another thing I would say about this program that I think makes it very successful. From a behavioral standpoint, you know, if, I, if I'm working with a participant and they need all kinds of help, right? And maybe they've got a laundry list of 20 things they got to work on. If they see that list, they're like, and I'm out. Right. When faced with that much change, nobody does anything. Right. So I have learned through the process to shorten my presentation, so now they're only 30 minutes or less, and also action items. When I give them, I give three at a time, no more than three ever. And so once they're done with those three, and this is all done through the app, so you know, I click it in, it gets sent to them. When they complete it, they click it off, and then we set the next meeting. What's been fascinating about this whole process is that we have, I mean, I've had participants who have emailed me or called me and said, hey, listen, I know I owed you my homework because I always put due dates on things. There's always due dates. That's the teacher
0: Um, in you. That's the educator in you.
1: hundred percent. hundred percent. But again, I'm the same way. So if I don't get a due date, if someone doesn't give me a deadline, in my mind, that means that it's whenever I have time. And so I think it's important to set deadlines. These are about smart goals, right? Yeah. So... But I have participants now, Josh, who are coming to me and saying, Hey, listen, I know I owed you this. I'm so sorry. I'm going to get it to you. I'm going to work on it tonight and get, get it to so you. So there's tomorrow. the
0: accountability. It's not like you, you know, they're kind of holding themselves accountable yeah.
1: to you. Yeah. I love that. I'm like, wow, yeah. this is for you. But- It's been a ginormous, ginormous shift. And I love seeing the excitement on people when they see like, oh, okay, I can do this. I might, I might fall off the wagon a little bit, but that's what Holly or or somebody on the team, that's what they're there to help me and keep me on track. So it's phenomenal.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. People think accountability is a bad word. And, no. and a lot of times people think accountability is something you do to someone. It's actually not accountability is something you do for someone, not to them. Right. Right. And that little, even that shift, number one, you can only hold someone accountable who gives you permission to hold them accountable. Yes. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's critical, but, but holding people accountable, it can be hard but it's actually for them. It's not something you do, you do to them. And when people know that you actually, you're doing it, not as like a stern taskmaster per se, Mm -hmm. but out of this desire to really help them. I think that goes a long way in terms of opening up, you know, people's hearts and minds to wanting to be held accountable and providing that permission. Have you seen that as well?
1: Big time. Big time. Yeah. I mean, I think the first step is the trust, right? So they need to be able to trust you and and identify with you. And I think there's some really, this is the hard part that, and we talked a lot about this in Nashville in different seminars, but- I think there's a lot of really great advisors out there who are, are, you know, are doing the right thing and they're doing it for the right reasons. But I think if you're not able to connect with people and get that vulnerable piece into it, then it's going to be really hard to bring over a stranger essentially into, you know, your mindset or or, or to help them. It's really hard to help them. So trust is first, vulnerability, and then accountability. So You know, if they have signed on to this program, they're signing on for that accountability factor. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, listen, again, whatever decisions you make are up to you. If you're saying that you want this, okay, but just understand that for every, and good, bad, or indifferent, there's a consequence for every action that we have. So my job-
0: Trade-off management, basically.
1: There you go. My job is just yeah. to inform you of all of those different consequences. Yeah. And I'm certainly going to kind of direct you in, in the direction I think based on, you know, based on what I know of you and, and all of that. But ultimately it's not my decision to make, it's yours. And, yeah. you know, I'm here if you need me to support you. That's what it's about. So they're in. If, they, if yeah. they're signing up, they're in. So yeah. I hold them yeah. accountable for it.
0: Yeah. You know, one of my mentors has for a long time said that you have to want what your wants lead to? For a long time, I was like, "What the heck does that mean?" But you know what it means is this: like, go back to the, uh, you know, losing twenty pounds, getting in shape. It's not enough to want to get healthier and, let's say, to lose weight. You have to want what those wants lead to. What does that mean? That means that I have to want to go to the gym at six o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I have to want. To maybe reduce my alcohol intake. You know, I have to want, (laughs) I have to want to say no to that extra, you know, dessert that looks really good, but I know is going to be taking me away from what I have said that I want. So it's not enough just to want things. We all want things. You have to want what those wants lead to. And getting back to the behavioral piece, it usually requires like discipline and some discomfort is involved uh, in getting what you want.
1: As humans, we're humans, right? So as humans, we are not designed for delayed gratification right. for the most right. part, right? So we're asking people to delay for any something par- for
0: any for any part
1: for right? anything.
0: A, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? Exactly. That's what i saying.
1: Exactly. But I you know, I always tell like at the end of every class that I've taught at UNH um, or at any class actually now. I've always said the same thing and it's like you step outside your comfort zone. Don't step so far out of your comfort zone that you are drowning and you, you know, you can't get out of your own way, but step out far enough that you're uncomfortable where it's painful Mm. and, and uncomfortable because that is where we stretch and grow the most. And we learn the most about ourselves. So I I put myself through that all the time Mm. and financially, emotionally with everything. Like it's really, really important to understand it's okay to be uncomfortable Cause you're going to learn something from that uncomfortableness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, you know, the, the last kind of learning that I would take away from what you've talked about as well, and this is really for, you know, the advisors and advisory firms out there is like, you need an internal champion for this. You need somebody who is going like wellness. I would say it, it like, don't do it halfway when Mm. at green spring, Advisors, the firm that, that I co-founded, like I had built us a financial wellness solution, but like somebody has to champion the cause. It can't just be like you said, the record keepers, like every record keeper pretty much offers a wellness solution. And it's more like check the box. Like, yeah, we do that, but you need somebody to really have a program that is going to be successful in terms of being implemented and getting results for clients. You need somebody internally who's going to own it and really become that champion. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Definitely. Yeah. I, I think our, well, our, our mutual friend, Brad Aaron says it this way. It's like, you need the tech. So technology is a big piece of yeah. what drives this forward, but technology and humans, like you need yeah. both. And Tech's so- an
0: enabler. It's not a, it's not it's the, it's not a the tool answer. in the hands of the craftsperson, person, right? It's not the, So it's not the, It's not the solution itself.
1: Exactly. It's like you can give people all the resources in the world. I mean, we can do a lot of our own problem solving all day long, but you still need that human element to help keep you accountable. And that's, that's a very big piece of this.
0: Yeah. So let's transition kind of last topic as we start to, to, to wrap up a little bit. I know one of the things you're really passionate about is wellness and planning for women.
1: Women. And so talk
0: a little bit about before we started recording, I kind of shared with you in 2019, I had created a, a, a comprehensive financial wellness survey for our firm that we implemented with our client base. And, and, you know, I was hoping to get like three to 500 people to respond. I had almost 1900 people respond to the survey. Is
1: crazy. That's fantastic. Well,
0: and, and the survey was 75 questions. It was in 10 what? different areas. And we had a, what was interesting is, I used SurveyMonkey and, and based on their research, when a survey goes above 40 questions, completion rates drop to 25%. Yeah. I had almost twice the number of questions, and our completion rate was 89%, Gosh. which is off the off the charts. But I think it's because not because I designed a great survey, but I think it's because yeah. this was on the hearts and minds of people. And the way that I designed the survey was it it asked these 75 questions, but then I sliced and diced the data between gender, between age and income, because I wanted to see a multidimensional approach. And what was really obviously interesting was the number one gender and and age aside, the most at-risk population was people making less than $50,000. But the second most at-risk population were women Mm. making less than $50,000. And women expressed much higher levels of stress than men did. And also we're focused on very different things. Men's were men were heavy focused on like on investments and retirement, whereas women were much more focused around budgeting, debt management, compensation, stuff like that. So talk a little bit about kind of your passion for helping women become financially well.
1: This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So how much time have we got? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> much time know. as you need. <laughs> First, I would say, you know, I also look at things from different lenses, right? And I think that's really important that we don't always have the same lens on. It's important to look at different perspectives. It makes things, you know, a little bit more deeper, the learnings deeper. From a, a gender perspective, when you think about like, I, I love this analogy. Someone said it a long time ago and I just love it. I'm like, men are like spaghetti that hasn't been cooked brain wise, like in how they function and, and think about things. And women are like spaghetti that's been cooked. It's like all jumbled and you know, you may get to the same place, but yeah. it's, it, and this is a broad stroke because not everybody falls neatly into this box. But for the most part, I would say that that's, that's kind of held true, at least in, in yeah. my experience of working with participants. And you're right. I mean- Men tend to look at, you know, charts and, and data and tables and, and, you know, returns. Like, that's stuff that's uh, typically more important to, I don't say more important than men, to men, but it, it is a focal, focal point for them. And the industry has kind of catered to that. Like I would say up until, you know, in the last few years anyway, it's it has kind of catered to that kind of mentality. Financial wellness, I mean, go to an executive committee meeting. We weren't talking about education. We weren't talking about financial wellness. And now in the past year, like it is the biggest piece of what we talk about at every committee meeting now. Right. So, you know, the industry is taking a shift. When it comes to women though, it's, You know, there's there's a couple of challenges that we face as women that you know are unique to us. One of them is that you know, from an income perspective, we are although we have improved quite a bit, we're still making less. Since I think it's what is it, eighty two or eighty three cents to the dollar for every dollar that a man makes, a woman makes. And there's a lot of reasons. I know people are in different you know schools of thought on why that is. But part of that is, you know, when you look at people leaving the workforce, typically it's women who will leave the workforce at certain points in their career, usually when they're just starting to kind of like build up their career. Mm -hmm. So they take out, so their money's no longer going into retirement and they're staying home to either care for elderly parents or for children. And, you know, that traditionally has been kind of the roles that they've played. So... A, they're, they're not contributing, which means that their money's not growing for them at the same rate as men. But then B, you look at the fact that women outlive men by five to seven years or nine years, depending on, you know, which data points you look at. We're outliving men and, and we have less money. So it's like, it's kind of a double edged sword there. So, so it's, I think it's really, really important that that needs to happen a lot sooner. But why is that? In my experience, women tend to, again, going back to, we look at things differently, but if they don't understand something, it's like, you know, they don't feel like they want to ask the questions, right? Because they feel like I should probably know that. I hear this all the time. I know I should know this. I'm like, no, you don't necessarily should know this. I mean, you know what you know, but, you know, educating women about that much sooner is really important, but the vulnerability piece, that's why a lot of women, and we're, I mean, you've, I'm sure you've heard this. We're going to see the largest wealth transfer that we've, the yeah. country has ever seen and it's happening in the next 10 years. And it's going to women, millennial women specifically because of the dual inheritance you know, from um, spouses and parents dying. But so you're, a lot of wealth is coming in from... For, that women are going to be managing, and yet they they don't know the difference between a stock and a bond, or a Roth and a traditional. Why they should do one over the other, or how much money they should have in their account—they don't know any of this because they haven't been part of the conversation, right? right. So we started, and I or wanted- in
0: those me- or in those meetings, and just haven't seen this over the years. And I think a lot of advisors mm. make a major mistake as they mm. sit down. Let's just say with a husband and wife, and they don't realize that they don't have the emotional intelligence to realize that. You know, maybe let's say the wife is the one who makes the financial decisions and makes the trains run on time. Yep. They think it's the man, and so they spend all their time in the meeting, kind of like talking to the man, not realizing that they're talking to the wrong decision maker. And just this wall goes up because yep. they haven't done a good and and it's not husband or wife. I think in a lot of ways, to make a, a, a call it a marriage work successfully financially, is it really comes down to in some ways navigating kind of marriage financial counseling and making sure that, you know, whether it's partners, whatever Mm -hmm. are on the same page that they both know their money stories, if you will, and can have an honest conversation about it. And that ultimately they're selecting goals and, and, and outcomes Mm -hmm. they want to drive where they're kind of negotiating and horse trading, if you will, Mm -hmm. so that they're in alignment. But I see a lot of advisors make the mistake of spending 80% of the time talking to the man in a meeting instead of, of involving and engaging. Or you get men who are in the meeting and they just talk like, you know, they're the one driving the bus and haven't even like given their significant other the opportunity and the space to have their own opinion.
1: That's happened to me. Actually, the very first time I ever sat with a financial advisor, my husband and I sat with him, who, by the way, this advisor ended up pulling me into the business. So we are friends now. But yeah. that first meeting, he didn't look at me one time. Yeah. And we and I'm sure I stopped listening at some point during that conversation yeah. because I was like, he doesn't really care what I have to think. So I'm not going to even, you know, yeah. I'm not going to listen to him. And so we laughed and he's like, "Yeah, oh, that was great. That was a great meeting. What'd you think? Like, I'm like, no. No, thank you. I'm like, he's like, what are you talking about? I thought he had some great points. I'm like, to you, maybe, but I didn't yeah. feel like part of that conversation. And so, mm. uh, you know, and we're we're in this together. So it feels like we should both be part of it. Yeah. Just as a side note, I watched this happen in front of me on the record keeper side. We were doing a um, RFP, they're changing record keepers, and... I- It was a huge plan and it was very well orchestrated like this whole RFP. And so the guy, one of the reps gets up there and does their, you know, 30 minute presentation. Not one time did he look at the HR director who was a female, right? Mm. And she, as we all know, you don't have to have three letters after your name to be the most important person in a room. Sometimes it's, you know, the receptionist who has the most power, right? From a leadership perspective. and. I spent the whole time, I was fascinated. I'm, I'm a, I'm a behavioral scientist. I love, love, love yeah. this stuff. And I just watched this kind of interaction and I'm like, oh. I'm like, and I leaned over to my boss. And I'm like, they're not going to get this. And it was the yeah. right plan or the right record keeper for them. I'm like, they're not going to get it. So they, they walked out of the room and we do our little huddle in. Right. So, and then he asked, he's like, okay, so what did you guys think? And she said, we're not going with them. Uh, right. And I'm like, why is that? Nailed it. I'm like, I'm curious. What did you not like about that? She goes, he didn't even address me one time, the whole time. And she goes, and I asked him a question and just, he like looked at everyone else and didn't even answer my question. I don't want them. And I looked at my boss. I'm like, see, there's something to this. Yeah. Women need to be heard. And so, so part of one of my own professional, personal initiatives uh, for this year was to do a women in finance series. And uh, cause it was really important to me that we kind of give them a little bit of uh, extra TLC in in this realm. And uh, sometimes women and men probably, but women won't talk about things that are vulnerable if they're men in the room. Yeah, And so that's why we kind of, we kind of did this and it's been a really interesting thing. We started with this group um, called womenology. And so Aviva and I both, we, We co-presented two finance things and it was part of a a bigger series, not just about finance, but we had so much activity and so much feedback that we started our own. And so we've done six of them. We have one more to go, but it's such a great, it's such a great community because you've got women on this who are from all different walks of life. There are different points in their life, different socioeconomics, different religions, different everything, different mindsets. And it's really, really cool to see women talking to each other about things that they're usually vulnerable about. Mm. And I love that idea. And, you know, it kind of stemmed really, this is my last part about this. I could talk about this all day, Josh. I
0: know you could. A, so you I, should. It's, a, it's important. It's yeah. important.
1: I did a session once and this is kind of like, this is where the women, this is, was kind of my aha moment. I did a session for a, it's a, a tech company in Boston. This was before COVID a lot of people. And then we I did consultations afterwards. So I had like 15 or 16 consultations lined up afterwards. My first or second person that I spoke to was this young woman. She was in her mid twenties. She's making like, I don't know, $60,000 a year, which is not a lot if you live in Boston, right. but she was able to save a thousand dollars a month. She had like hmm. a, six months worth of emergency savings. She had no debt. I mean, this girl had set herself up really, really well. And I, you know, I was joking with her. I'm like, I don't think you, you don't need me Let's not, I mean, there's always things we can tweak, but sure. I think, I'm like, I have to say, I'm, I'm really, really impressed to see someone your age being so involved and so cognizant of what you're doing and mindful of your goals. So can I ask you like, what drives you? What's your money story? And so she, you know, she had a money story and she said, I really want to take control of this and I don't want that power to be given to anybody else. I want to understand mm-hmm. it. The problem was I didn't have anyone around me who like, you know, to talk to about it. And women like to talk to other women about stuff like this. So she went to the HR director and asked for a stipend, a monthly stipend, which she got. And she started a women finance club at their company.
0: That's awesome.
1: She set very concrete rules and the rules were like three. So one, you talk about what's bothering you. Like what's bothering you right now? What do you need to work on? Where are your pain points? And people give feedback. The second one is you talked about X last month. What did you do differently? Or what roadblocks did you? So now this is the accountability, right? And then the last one is how are you feeling? Because that emotional piece is big for women. And a lot of decisions yeah. that get made are made based on how they're feeling about things. And so it was just fascinating to me, fascinating to me. That day I had about four other women who all said the same story. And so I'm thinking to myself, wow, here you've got a group of women who are really engaged in their own learning and they want to know this. We should do like a train the trainer program. Like we should be out there like showing them like, here's, here's the basics and, and teach it and then have them go out and be the ambassadors for this. Because ultimately we learn from each other. Yeah. And that peer support is going to, is huge. And so yeah. that was kind of what was driving the women in finance. It's just, it's just been really good. And I will tell you, I mean, I've sat with a lot of women lately. I actually just had this happen earlier this week who, you know, I, I had a widower and her husband had just died and, you know, she's, older. And she's like, I don't know what to do. And I don't know Mm. who to trust. I mean, there's so many advisors and I don't know what to ask and I don't know what to look at. And I don't know what to do. And, and it was just, I could see and feel the fear in her. Right. And it's like, she's indicative of so many other conversations that I've had. Mm. And I watched my best friend, this happened to her. Uh, Her husband was on, I was with her in the hospital. He was in a skiing accident and he said, Anna, Anna, In the drawer, on the desk, there's a key, you know, all the stuff is in there. And she's like, oh, you're fine. He's like, just listen to me. And then he ended up dying on the table. Mm. We coached soccer together. So we were very close. But Anna had never looked at finance. She had no idea what their what their household income was, what they were doing. She just knew that she would use her credit card, go out and purchase the household food and whatever, and he would take care of everything else. If Andy hadn't set it up for her, like, thank God he did that because- Usually, when you're talking about widowers, I mean they're already going through something super emotional and hard. The last thing they want to have to do is now figure out finance right. and like how this all works and how they yeah. fit into it. So mm. I'm, that's a powerful story. It's it's near and dear to my heart. I'm very, I'm a mm. huge advocate yeah. for women specifically just because of that.
0: Yeah. Well, as we wrap up, Holly, this has been an awesome conversation. I can't I believe this is, went I knew so this. Fast. Was, I know. I knew this was gonna when we when we <laughs> met out in Nashville. I was like, you have got to come on. <laughs> Podcast, and you have not disappointed at all. I usually wrap this up, and I, I ask guests what their single best piece of advice for Arissa fiduciaries would be, because the the whole purpose of this this podcast and kind of the fiduciary you brand, if you will, is to help to teach people to be better ERISA fiduciaries, whether that's a retirement plan committee member, whether that is an advisor, whether that is someone else in the retirement kind of ecosystem that's in support of retirement fiduciaries. So what would be your single best piece of advice?
1: I would say, you know, for the advisors that I've talked to who are interested in my story or interested in financial wellness, but they're like, I'm not really sure if this is the right fit. Can I do this? I mean, I've talked to a lot of advisors since Nashville who have called me up about financial wellness specifically. I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's like, I think when you do the right thing and you're authentic about it, the money will always come, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, setting up a financial wellness program, if, if you don't can't scale it for yourself, you can't handle that yourself. Partnering with somebody, doing something because A, it's important and it's going to be, I think, in my opinion, the driving force for actually changing the situation we're in as far as retirement readiness is concerned. I I don't think that's going to happen without holistic financial wellness, not just basics of your 401k. So I think that's a a really important thing. And then when you do that, you're doing the right thing for for the employees. You can check off all your compliance boxes but also it's going to help you grow your business. I mean, I talk to people all the time who typically, I would say, typically speaking, you can kind of answer, you know, or help them along just as a participant in a plan. Then you run into complexities or as they, you know, start growing assets or growing their wealth, they have, you know, they get married, they have children, they're, you know, all kinds of things that happen during life's path. When they, need someone to talk to about finances or financial planning, or maybe they're at a point now where they need financial planning uh, on a wealth management side, who are they going to go to? They're going to go to the people that like have been holding their hand through this process the whole time. And I think that's a big thing. And you have to kind of be mindful of that. But again, if you do the right thing for the right reason, the money will come.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you know, growing your business, the flip side of that is the only way you grow is you retain right i always use the analogy like a coffee cup like if i pour coffee in a coffee cup and i poke a hole in the bottom you know if coffee is dripping out the bottom in order to keep that coffee cup full i got to make sure the rate at which i'm pouring coffee into the top is exceeds the rate at which it's coming out of the bottom and so you know when you when you can engage and you have employees is something that that i had our team do a lot was just at the end of these meetings like hey just if you found value in it, you know, make sure to drop HR a line or whatnot. If you've got employees that are going back to, you know, HR and saying, man, Holly is so awesome. I love this wealth sense. It's really hard to have another advisor. Like companies are going to be much less inclined. I think when employees are happy to right. want to go ahead and make a change. So the, so, so growth isn't just about retention. It's, you know, it's top line, but it's also bottom line as well. And I think, Engaging, yeah. like you said, number one, this provides tremendous value to American workers. And as an industry, we have to figure out a way to scale planning to the masses, to the 97% of people who typically fall outside the realm of being an attractive prospect to you know, an advisory firm. So I think that is awesome advice, and I appreciate it.
1: I love, I feel like you are inside my head sometimes. You say these things. I'm like, that's exactly what I was going to say. But yeah, I agree with all of that. I can't even, I'll just, my stamp on that. This is a fun business to be in. I mean, we're yeah. in a business where we get to really actually help people. And yeah. you know, I know there's advisors out there who are doing this because of the money or because of, you know, yep. whatever, but. I got to believe the majority of people actually do want to help. And, you know, I think it's our responsibility as an industry to move this needle because people don't know what they don't know. And it's our job to help them. So
0: absolutely. So where can people stay connected with you? Like what's the best place if somebody wants to reach out to you, they want to get in touch, they want to stay connected, find out what you're up to. What's the best way for them to do that?
1: So my email is – it's easier. I'll just do education at sapers-wallack.com. So it's S-A-P-E-R-S-wallack, W-A-L-L-A-C-K.com. I've got a good radio voice.
0: You do have a good – I was just going to say, you've got a good radio voice. I've got a good radio face.
1: Oh, you radio
0: You've got a good radio voice.
1: But yeah, so if people who want to get in touch, you, if you have questions, whatever, education at Sapers is the best way to get a hold of me. And yeah, we can just go up from there. But or LinkedIn, LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn. Yeah,
0: I, I'll put both of those in the show notes so that people can, uh, people can connect with you.
1: Yeah, right. And there's no video, um, right, Josh? Like we're looking at each other right now, but you can't see my funny faces on video. Or is that going to be the, on
0: video? This is, this is video. This is, the, ah! this is. Finish so you podcast is coming into like, you know, we're, we're, we're forward thinking. Like this is moving into video. So <laughs> Love it. anyways, this has been an awesome conversation. I think you have an incredible story. I think you articulated it and communicated it in a really powerful way. Wow. And I just have a ton of admiration for how purpose driven you are, but also you know, a lot of, we talked about it in life, a lot more often said than actually done. And your ability to be a champion for wellness at your firm and do the hard work of going out, finding a solution, but more importantly, implementing that solution for the past 12 months and seeing the outcomes that it drives, like that is a huge accomplishment. And so kudos to you.
1: Thank you so much. So much for, uh, thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm super, super happy that our paths crossed and connected and I think I need you on my personal board, my board okay. of advisors to kind of help me figure out some stuff. You've got a I great marketing mind. Great. I
0: would love that. So, well, thank you so much and uh, great combo.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Josh.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode with Holly Knight from Sapers & Wallach. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode, along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcast. It's the best way to help other people find the show and I read each one. Until next time, Thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary U Podcast.